And welcome back to Never Too Late, and I am your host, Debbie Wright. We are going to continue our talk today with Tom Wright, who happens to be the love of my life and my husband. Right? Right. Right. Absolutely. Right what? You're my husband or you're the love of my life? Yeah, both. Okay. Am I the love of your life, though? Absolutely. Okay. All right. Just so we're clear there. And Tom was telling us last week how he got into flying late in life and became a pilot late in life. And we are going to continue with some of those stories because he has a lot of stories to tell. When we left off, he was talking about when he was in Afghanistan and living in Bagram, basically. So let's just get back into that then. Did you meet Afghani people while you were on base? Yeah, there were, there were a couple that were pretty nice and they were normal people. They had families uh, and things like that. And then some of the others... Definitely 15th century people. And, you know, maybe possibly because they didn't have a lot or whatever. Were you afraid around some of them? We were always wary because you never knew. The war in Afghanistan is very much a guerrilla war. There there are no, we were the only standing army. Nobody else, uh, they dressed like civilians. Uh, so you never knew who the bad guys were. And is it right to call them bad guys? You know, maybe not because they were defending what they thought was proper for them. Now, I'm not talking about the Taliban, but the, uh, you know, some of the people didn't like us and they looked at us as an invaders. But, uh, yeah, it's like anywhere in the world that I've been and, and anybody else, you'll meet good people and you'll meet some less than good people. But over in a war zone, you really have to watch out because you don't know who is around the corner with an AK-47 that they're planning to go crazy. Um, well, that can happen sometimes in the United States. Oh, absolutely. So what kind of jobs did the Afghani people do on base? Well, the military for years has done away with, let's call it the, the KP, uh, Kitchen Police. Now... KP stands for Kitchen Police? Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah. Okay. Now the military contracts out things like that, which frees up soldiers to be soldiers. So the mess halls are contracted out uh, to different companies like Halliburton or anything like that. They in turn will subcontract with local people to work for them. And supposedly they're all vetted and they're, you know, supposedly good people and pass ideological tests or whatever. Supposedly. Supposedly. You know, because there was times we've had lockdowns in the mess kit the mess hall where we'd be eating uh, military food rations for a couple days because there was a threat that everything was going to be poisoned. There was a time that we had to eat uh, the MREs because uh, the guys blew up the warehouse. In fact, I think I sent you a picture of that. Yes. We I... were landing in the warehouse that kept all our food was on fire. So you had to really be situational aware. It's like if you're in the woods, you're always looking down to see if you can step on a snake. Over there, you're always looking five meters ahead of you to make sure there's nothing out of the ordinary that you could step on and blow up. Uh, or you're always watching to see who's watching you, who's following you. You never did anything going out by yourself, ever. You're always in two or three at, at a minimum. Even on base? Even on base. Yeah, because you didn't know. I mean, we knew, everybody knows there were bad guys on base that, and they would, you could see them, you know, taking pictures of things or very methodically stepping off distances so that they would know how far it is from a certain point 
to the flight line to shoot mortars that distance. Um, so when that happened, could they not be kicked off base? When well, well, they would just say, they would just say, no, I'm just not walking. Oh, okay. Because they had been vetted. They had passed the security test. Mm. But that's true in any war. That's, that's true anywhere. And because they don't dress like soldiers, you never know. They just blend in with the population. And, okay, so speaking of what they wear then, you said they don't dress like shoulder, soldiers. Do they wear the, I don't know, what do you call them, the gowns or whatever? Yeah, you know, the haji pants and the, the long knee-length shirt and a vest. It, a tunic, I think it's, yeah, yeah. A tunic is what it's called. Yeah, I think uh, there was one time, because they did your laundry also. Yeah. And I believe one time I was talking on the phone with you and you were wandering around outside and you had me talk to one of them. Yeah. The laundry guy. Yeah, the laundry <laughs> guy, and he's the guy I gave cookies to that time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was there's some nice guys. I mean, and they would, you know, working for the military overseas as a contractor, those, the, the foreign nationals, they were making more money than they'd ever seen in their life. Uh, and they might only get $300 a month American, but to them, that's a fortune. So when you were on base, did you get along with the military people? Yes. You got along fine with them? Yeah. Unless you were caught speeding? Unless you caught speeding, yeah. Okay, yeah. Don't speed we're not, on We're base. not wearing your seatbelt over oh, your shoulder. Oh, yeah. wearing your seatbelt correctly. Okay, yeah, don't do that on base. You know, one day I was driving on the main street, and we're going, limit, speed limit was five miles an hour, by the way. And the MP Jeep's going the other way, he turns around, and. Pulls, pulls us over because I'm wearing my seatbelt uh, and these are all raggedy vehicles we're driving so the seatbelt would rub on my neck so I just ran it under my arm and he said that's illegal to do you can't do it and wrote me a ticket so I had to go to the JAG office Judge Advocate General and I had to bring my supervisor with me well we really didn't have any supervisors so I got one of your pilots to go with me claimed that he was my supervisor and claimed that he had talked to me and counseled me and all this and would never do it again. Taught so you how to wear your seatbelt. Taught me how to wear the seatbelt. Okay. And so they dropped the whole thing. Well, about three days later, he was caught doing something, and I went and pretended to be his supervisor. <laughs> and the, uh, the guy in the JAG office just looked at us and shook his head. <laughs> but just to point out, you do wear your seatbelt correctly now. I, I've noticed that you do know how to wear a seatbelt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you really do. Yeah. Well, in the United States, I don't know, maybe if you went back to Afghanistan, you would still wear oh, it yeah. incorrectly. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, the seatbelt can inhibit you getting out of the vehicle. Mm. That's true. Yeah. Well, yeah, if they, if you have bomb incoming bombs, you're not going to want to have to take the time to unbuckle that seatbelt. You want to jump right out of there, That's don't right. you? That's right. That's you right. should have argued that point. Yeah, and there was that, that had to do a lot with flying too. You know, we'd come back to the states to go to uh, recurrent training every six months. So you come back to flight training school. It can be in San Antonio or Atlanta. Or Atlanta, yeah, yeah. One time we were in San Antonio, and uh, you know, the in the simulators they have a very specific curriculum and how you have to do things according to the FAA and stuff like that. And the instructor was jumping all over me because I was flying, he thought, like a madman. You know, diving to the ground and banking beyond the 30 degrees and stuff like that. And I said, you know, that's, that's how we have to fly with it. People are shooting at you. And so they 
counseled me and I flew it the way they wanted and stuff like that. And then uh, about a year later, the instructor had been trying to get on the list for quite a while and he finally got hired. When he went back to the training facility to train, he told him, hey, Tom is correct. You do not fly a stabilized approach. <laughs> you dive at the ground and you get on the ground as fast as you can. No lights at night, nothing, because you're just a sitting target coming in low and slow. And so did they take that to heart? They, they took that into consideration, so uh, we had to show that we could fly proper approaches and things like that. If you were in the States. If we're in the, yeah, in the States. Mm -hmm. I mean, you had, still had to pass their curriculum, mm -hmm. but they cut us some slack on the fact that we were, would fly the approaches in the simulator the way we did over there. So I can't remember if I asked you this already, but there were there any scary moments for you over there? I mean, you kind of got used to the mortar bombings, I guess, or whatever you call them. But what about any any other scary moments? Um, or can you tell us about them? Yeah, nothing I can really elaborate on. There, I'm, there, there were a few things, but uh, it was just a matter of being on your tiptoes all the time. At the beginning, at least, you had some... Uh, I guess you'd call them modern day conveniences. You had a coffee shop and you had... Oh yeah, then uh, they change commands and the, the generals change commands every year. The new general came in and Burger King was gone, the coffee shop was gone, everything was gone. You know, he was going to take heat and he was, his office was in uh, a really nice Afghanistan mansion with some beautiful gardens and he was having all that torn out make, making a shooting range out of it. Well, that was good. He wasn't just thinking of himself, at least. Yeah, you know, even though <laughs> the general ate a lot, he did not eat mess hall food. No. <laughs> but it was interesting because the, the meat, as time went by, you know, and being contractors all running the whole place, everything is up for bid every year. So the lowest bidder always gets the contract. Well, so as the contract went along, the food got worse because they were using cheaper ingredients. And I was watching them unload food off the refrigerated truck one day, and the boxes of steak were stamped as clear as you can think for institutional or prison use only. I mean, there was that such low quality food. And it started out being really good. I mean, you could have milkshakes and anything you wanted for breakfast. And after How'd a while, you get ice cream? They flew it off. Frozen. Yeah. Was it frozen? Yeah. What about milk? No, I never saw milk over there other than this. Uh, Powdered milk? No, it's irradiated stuff that didn't have to be refrigerated, shelf life for a year. So it was warm milk? Did they get a cold? I, I never tried it. They wouldn't, no, I didn't, it wasn't cooled off. Oh, no, warm milk does not sound good. Yeah. No, the only dairy I ate was uh, I would mix cornflakes with yogurt for breakfast sometimes. But sometimes you didn't even get breakfast because you had to yeah. leave. Yeah, yeah we would leave so early we'd have a mission call time before the mess halls even open. So we were kind of getting screwed because, you know, the food was part of our pay and privileges uh, for working for the military. And you'd be gone all day, so you'd miss lunch, and you'd get, get back in for dinner, so you'd have basically one meal a day, and you weren't supposed to take food out of the mess hall, so we would kind of hoard stuff and make sandwich while we eat, and then just wrap it up and put it on our shirt so we'd have something for breakfast. Save it for the next day? For the next day. Did you have a refrigerator in your room? Uh, I did eventually. I got a little camping refrigerator from, you know, this girl I knew that was... Oh, did somebody sweet send you yeah, one? Yeah, met her in Montana. Yeah. 
And it's still in Afghanistan. Yeah. Some Afghani has a nice little refrigerator. Nah, they don't know how to use it. They're probably broken already. <laughs> and, well, he used to get care packages, too. Yeah. Yeah. Mail was pretty good. It took a long time to get, but it was one of those deals. The little PX over there was probably no bigger than a small house in the States. We had like 30,000 people on Bagram Air Base. So you go to the go to the PX, try to, uh, every day, every other day, and if there was toothpaste in, you'd, you'd buy as many as you could, because it might be a month before you saw toothpaste again. Uh, so everybody threw the mail. That's kind of like hoid, hoarding the toilet paper in 2020. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so everybody would get care packages over there with tooth, toothpaste or peanut butter or cookies or, you know, whatever you couldn't get over there consistently. And it was nice to get a care package from home. Knowing that somebody back home loved you. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So what else was it like living on Bagram? Well, I'm, okay, tell us about the money. What do you use for money? Uh, well, because it turned out that money was the, some of the little shops that were allowed to be on the airbase were possibly being used by bad guys, but at the very least, you know, they were getting paid in American dollars, those dollars would go off base, the bad guys would get the money, and that would help finance their portion of the war. So, basically, money was forbidden to use. You would uh, go to the uh, payroll officer, and you would exchange any money you brought with you for what they call POGs, which is basically play money. And everything... It's like it's like the pogs that kids used to play with. Though. Yeah, exactly. Back in the 80s. Little cardboard so discs and yeah. how much it's worth. Yeah. And that's and so everybody that has come back from over there probably has a pocket full of the things because you'd never take the effort to go in and cash them back in. So the military or the PX or whoever made out like a bandit because <laughs> they only came the lowest denomination was like five cents. So if you expected three cents back for change from something, you, you didn't get it. It was just too bad. But, you know, the rest of us, we, you know, I would go to Afghanistan and, and I would take $300 cash with me uh, because you could use a credit card at the PX for something. But the cash is nice to have while you're traveling back and forth over there. So that, that's not a whole lot of money to take for because you were gone for two months at a time and then you would come home for a month and then you would leave again. Yeah, yeah. But there's nothing over there to spend it on either. Right. You know. Except for coffee from the coffee shop. And yeah, coffee from the green bean or jewelry for my wife. Jewelry, yes. Yeah, jewelry. Yeah. Spent a lot of money on jewelry over there. I don't know if it's a lot, <laughs> but yeah, there is some nice jewelry from over there. Is there anything else you want to tell us about living on Bagram? Probably some of the best, best buddies of my life I met there. Uh, still keep in touch. I was hot and dirty in the summer. It was cold and dirty in the winter. What did you live in? Uh, for a while, I was living in a plywood box. Plywood? Was there insulation? No. But you, then, had, you had a heater, but no air conditioning? Yeah. And then another, on some of the out bases, the FOBs, they would call it. What does FOB stand for? Uh, forward operating base. We lived in, in, in tents. Mm. You know, they, the engineers would come in and build a wooden floor and set up a tent on it. Well, there was at least one night that you had trouble with your airplane and you had to stay at one of those yeah. places. Yeah, and it was in the winter, it was cold. The only thing extra that the 
people there had was I had a sheet to try to wrap up in and stay warm that night. Miserable night. And then the next day, since we had to park over in the Afghani side because we couldn't get our aircraft to cross the gravel area because we had nicked the propellers, I called for the MPs to come out with the bomb-sniffing dogs and check the airplane out before I would take it. That's probably a good plan. Oh, yeah. Apparently, they didn't find anything. But... No, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good thing. So then you ended up retiring from flying. Yeah. Still look up every time an airplane goes by, though. Do you miss flying? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes very much. I, I was just telling Tom the other day that he was in the middle of a sentence, and then he looked up at the sky and told me whatever kind of plane it was. I said, you know, it's like that TV show or movie or whatever it was where they just go, squirrel. And for Tom, it's like, airplane. Yep. Just whatever he's doing, he'll just stop in the middle of it and have to tell yeah, me what kind you, of airplane that is. You tell what kind of airplane it is just by the sound. Yeah. So pretty, I just agree. I say, yep, you're right. That is a Cessna. Yeah. Yep, you're right. Yep, King Air. Uh-huh. I knew that. Yeah, unfortunately, the last couple of houses we've had have been like on the downwind of the base leg of local little airports. Downwind. Yeah. <laughs> downwind to base leg. After you retired then from flying, what did you do? What did I do after we retired? Uh, we've been doing a lot of traveling. We have a motor home. I've been doing a lot of woodworking. Learned how to paint cars. But uh, you had another business. Oh yeah, we had a kayak business. Mm -hmm. Yes. The top rated kayak business on the east coast of Florida for about four years running. Treasure Coast. Not, treasure not coast. the whole east coast. Yeah, the Treasure, treasure coast. coast. And that was fun. Yeah, we would take people out on kayak tours so we wouldn't just rent them and send them on their way. We'd actually go with them and take them on tours. And we met people from all over the world doing that. Yeah. But that was another one. That was another dream that you had had. So it's another, it's never too late, right? That's right. It's never too late to have That's your right. kayak business. And we did that for, oh, I guess four or five years. And then it was time to retire from that job. <laughs> It, it turned it, it turned it, not into a hobby anymore. Yeah, it, turned it, it into was a so job. successful it turned into a job, and that's really not what I was looking for. But it was a nice income. It was fun to do. But I wanted something part time as a as a ho as a hobby retirement job, and this this turned into a successful full time job, which was great for a while. But it's was not intended to go that be that successful. Yeah, eventually, eventually we get older and yeah, can't be hoisting kayaks up. Because at one point we had probably 40 kayaks. Yeah, and 60 pounds a piece, that's a lot of weight to load and unload every day a couple times. Yeah. Plus washing all the equipment. And, but we did kayak uh, rescue lessons, deep water recovery lessons, all sorts of stuff. We'd teach people how to kayak. We'd ask them on the tours if they want to see Manitou or want to see the alligators. Manatee. Manatee, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what a Manitou is. Oh, uh, okay. it's a little town in Colorado Springs. Outside <laughs> Colorado Springs. But yeah, depending on uh, the attitude of the person, we would set up a trip for them to see different wildlife, and we'd give them a good explanation of the, uh, the plant life and the history of the area. It was a really enjoyable thing, and we did meet a lot of people from all around the world. Mm-hmm. Very nice people. Very nice people. So we have a few minutes left, so let's tell them our story about how we met, shall we? Okay. 
Okay. So as we said in the last podcast, Tom was a single pilot flying around the country, setting up dates wherever he went. Well, that's part of being a pilot if you're single. Yeah. And, and you don't have a stewardess, right? Right. Or whatever. They're yeah. not called stewardesses anymore. Yeah, but if you sky, don't have what a, a sky waitress. A sky. No, it's not a waitress either. Oh, a flight attendant. Flight attendant. That's yeah, what they're called. You don't need those on a freighter. Okay. So, so you had to find dates wherever you went. Well, it just so happened that one day I was at work and I got extremely bored. I had nothing to do at work. So for some reason, I don't know why, I got on a website called Plenty of Fish and I made a profile. And then one day I get a message from this pilot who was going to be flying into the town where I lived and he was looking for a date. A good time. A good time. <laughs> so we started talking. We talked and we decided that, you know, we were getting along pretty good and we were going to meet. But then he got this job in Afghanistan, so he never actually flew into the town where I was living. So what he did was he got on his motorcycle. With my dog. With the dog on the back in a milk crate and drove almost 1,000 miles to meet me. In late September, I believe, when it was getting cold. Yeah, it was starting to get chilly. Yeah. Yeah, it was getting chilly. Yeah, I was looking for a fun weekend and ended up with a wife. You got more than you bargained for, babe. That's right. Best trip I ever took. (laughs) So from there, he had to go to San Antonio one weekend for some flight training, and he flew me down there, where I could have paid for my own airline ticket, but I wanted to see how serious this guy was, so I let him buy me the ticket. And expensive dinners. Ugh, Ruth's Chris. My first time at Ruth's Chris. Yeah. Where I taught you to eat cheesecake, but that's, that's another right. story. That's another story. <laughs> and one time he uh, was coming back from Afghanistan then, and he had bought a car in what state? North Ten- Carolina? Tennessee. Tennessee. Cleveland, Tennessee. He bought a 66 Mustang in yeah. Cleveland, Tennessee, and so he flew into Atlanta, right? Uh, flew into uh, Washington, D.C., and my trip was to continue on there to Denver to get home, but I got off the airplane, bought a ticket down to Nashville or somewhere close to Cleveland, Tennessee. Okay. And picked up this car and I drove to Atlanta. And then he had had me fly to Atlanta, so he picked me up in the 66 Mustang. We took the back roads, had to use a paper map. We drove down to the Keys and we went on a kayak trip out into the Keys were islands that you can only reach by boats. And we fell in love with Florida. Yeah. So we decided that's where we were gonna live. And on the way home, I started looking for houses and... Yeah, that's the only time she was allowed to use her iPad because this whole trip and this whole Mustang (laughs) was what I considered a retro trip, all two lane roads, paper maps, eat at local restaurants, no fast food or, or nothing modern. And uh, we liked it so much, though, that I let her get on her iPad on the way back out of Florida. Now, while we were down there, the trunk of this Mustang, we couldn't get it open, so all of our stuff was stuck in there. We had to drop it off at a little Bubba shop in the islands and have them work on the trunk so we could get our stuff out of the trunk when we got back from this kayak trip. But then driving home, we just decided, you know, this would be a good place to live. 
So the next time he came home, which would have been almost three months later, we flew to Florida and bought a house. He went back to Afghanistan. And then three months later when he came home, we moved to Florida. Yeah. Got two of our sons to help us drive the vehicles down with a trailer and... A caravan. We caravan had. <laughs> down, yeah. It was quite the caravan. We had uh, four cars, four cars driving, two trucks and two cars driving, an extra car and a trailer and a, and a camper. camper. Yeah, it was quite the caravan. Yeah. And only two dogs at that time. So we are in Florida and Tom was leaving me for two months at a time. I knew no one in Florida, but I made a lot of great friends in Florida. It was, it was easy to meet friends in Florida and I still have great friends in Florida. So shout out to you guys if you're listening. And then we're kind of gypsy souls, I guess. We decided it was time to go somewhere else, so we moved up to well, we moved up to northern Alabama. I'm not going to say where. <laughs> and uh, we lived there for a couple of years. Yeah. And Big house. Yeah, we, we called it the castle. It was Castle Wright. We moved up there for a few years and just kind of decided that was not the place for us to be. Traveled around in the RV for right. almost nine months. Yeah. Met a lot of great people doing that. And then we finally settled down, and we are now, I believe, in our forever house. People laugh, people laugh at us when we say that, but we are in our forever house. Yeah, we are. We only average two and a half years in the house before we get bored. <laughs> but now we've got, we've, you've got your extra shop. I've got my pool. We've got our quiet room here where we can do podcasts, and I can do my auditions for acting. We've got... More than an acre and a half. And lots of frogs. Lots of frogs. <laughs> and one snake that we've seen so far. But we are definitely enjoying our life. And Tom is the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. My yeah, life... I'm not going to argue with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> My life has changed so much. I am I am so thankful. It's been how long have we been together? Over uh, 10, ten years, years now. Well, I'm yeah. I'm convinced that a lot of people end up with the wrong person because they are searching for who they think they are supposed to be with rather than just let it happen. People say, "Oh, well, he's not my type or she's not my type." When mm -hmm. in fact, the person that you need to be with is the guy or the girl that you know you bumped into at the grocery store that you would never even consider dating or that or that messaged you on a dating app yeah <laughs> uh you know you're you know a lot of people's idea they have in their mind the, the per, what their idea of the perfect mate would be you know he's got to be uh for a guy broad shoulders six two blue eyes dark hair great <laughs> job and loves kids uh, when in fact, that's not what you want. That's what you think you want, but you don't know. But when you do meet the right person, they're usually completely different than what you're used to. And that's what it, why it works out. Because mm -hmm. you find out that you met the right person, not the person you think was right for you. You have to look for not what people's physical appearance is necessarily, but what their heart is. Exactly. 
and yeah, our hearts meshed. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're getting all mushy here. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I knew when I took her for a first 500 mile drive in the dead of winter in a Shelby Cobra with no <laughs> heater, and I had her wrapped her up in a sleeping bag, and she mm -hmm. and she put up with that. I knew she was the right one. Yeah, you had to stop and buy me a sleeping bag to keep me warm. Yeah. Yeah, no windows. Yeah, no windows in that car. No windows, no heater. I held up stuff over the windows to try and help you stay warm. Yeah. Yeah, we worked for each other. See, yeah, we were thinking of out. each other even it then. Out. Yeah. But we have an awesome life together now. Yes, we do. We compliment each other. I don't mean compliment like say, ooh, babe, you're so good looking. I mean compliment, you know, with the C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T. We, we mesh. Yeah, we mesh. mesh like spiral cut gears with molybdenum lubricant. <laughs> and there's another whoosh over my head. Yeah. yeah, most people don't know what you're talking about there either. So, anyway, that's enough of us being mushy. That's our story. We're sticking to it. That's right. So, that goes to prove that it's never too late to find the love of your life. Exactly. Yeah. So, hold out. You know, you don't have to just find somebody just to find somebody. Yeah, don't settle. Hold, hold out until you find the one that you know. Yeah, I can't live without that person. Yeah. Okay. That is it for today, for this week. And thank you, Tom, again for being my special for guest. I liked I liked our stories together, and that's it. It's never too late. See you next week. Bye bye.